SB Nation and Underdog Dynasty present the Underdog Podcast. Merry Christmas and Happy New Year and welcome to the last, probably the last uh, episode of the Conference USA Underdog Dynasty podcast of the year. Uh, Diving into the CUSA championship, among many other things on this episode, Joe Londrigan and Eric Henry here with you once again. Eric, as we're recording this, we're just a couple days out from Christmas and it kind of feels like christmas but obviously with everything that's gone into 2020 it's a little bit of a different feel this year yeah yeah i mean it's just i think the big thing and first off i will echo the sentiments of my fine co-host joe Lonergan. hope everyone's having you know uh, happy holidays out there and by the time we'll hear this your holidays will uh, at least be passed as far as the hanukkah and christmas and everything else but yeah just with the the unsurety of being able to gather with your loved ones and all that jazz you know definitely um it feels it feels a lot odd for those people who you know typically that's a staple of their of their holiday season. It definitely sucks, and hopefully we can get past this 2020, put it to bed, put it to rest behind us, and 2021 will be a resumption of normal activities around the holidays. Absolutely, but in the meantime, hopefully some college football can uh, make things feel a little bit more normal for the holiday season. And uh, first off, let's start with talking about UAB once again claiming the Conference USA title. They beat Marshall in the championship game, twenty-two to thirteen. Jumped out to a nine to nothing lead. Uh, Marshall kind of made it interesting at the end. Uh, Xavier Gaines uh, caught a seventy-yard pass from Grant Wells in the fourth to uh, make it 15 to 13, uh, but UAB bounced right back to make it 22 to 13, put enough distance between them and the thundering herd to win that game. Uh, my initial thoughts here, you know, it's, it's strange to see uh, Marshall not really have it put together in the first half, uh, especially given what we've come to expect out of guys like Brandon Knox and Grant Wells. But at least defensively, UAB just looked like the more prepared team. And then, of course, you got to give it up for Tyler Johnson, 12 of 22, 252 yards and two touchdowns through the air for the Blazers. And then, of course, Spencer Brown, workhorse, 30 carries for 149 yards on the ground. So, I mean, it really was an entertaining game, and UA, or rather Marshall gave it a little bit of a run at the end, but ultimately just wasn't enough, and Bill Clark wins his uh, second Conference USA title in two years. I'm going to come back to the Blazers in a second. I'm going to start with Marshall. Just a couple things that jumped out to me as I was watching this game. It feels like, and once again, it's always hard to assess, especially with how up and down and topsy-turvy the roller coaster that 2020 has been, especially as far as the football season is concerned. It's hard to assess a young quarterback who is now making his, what, ninth career start in Grant Wells. Mm-hmm. But he has not played a great last eight quarters of football. There was a point in time in this game, Joe, in which he was 0 for 9. I believe he didn't get his first completion until the third quarter. It may have been early or late second quarter, but uh, he definitely started the game 0 for 9, if my memory serves me correct, before he got the, the long touchdown to Xavier Gaines. And to be honest, this game wasn't even as close as the score may indicate because, you know, you get that one uh, 70 yard touchdown, I believe it was, to, to Gaines. It's a big tight end. Outside of that, couldn't really get the running game going. And Brendan Knox had some some success, 17 carries for 67 yards. But once UAB was, you know, up nine, nothing. And it felt like Marshall at some point in time, the game was there for them and to, to take in the first half. 
And once they went into halftime with that 9-0 deficit, if you're a UAB fan and if you're a Blazer on that team, you had to feel like you had all the momentum going uh, to Huntington and playing that game. So that's the first thing. The second thing that had come back to UAB, I tweeted this during the game. One, this felt like a return of old school Spencer Brown, right? After last year, you know, it was banged up a little bit, had the uh, I believe it was a hamstring or maybe a groin injury he had, and he dropped the weight this year and came back and looked great. But this was old school Spencer Brown, 30 carries, a buck 49. If you remember correctly, you know, uh, during his first, uh, excuse me, his freshman and sophomore year, Spencer Brown was always among the league leaders in carries, you know, uh, for, for, for uh, Conference USA. So nice to see him, you know, kind of jump back in there and go old school. And then Tyler Johnston, it, it's what you expect from the UAB offense in terms of not necessarily the highest completion percentage, but they're going to throw the ball downfield and they're going to have some receiver who's going to make big plays. And Trey Shropshire, hopefully I'm getting that last name correctly. Myron Mitchell opts out. You know, you don't have guys like Austin Watkins. You don't have uh, th- those deep threats, right? And you wonder who's going to be the next guy. Trey Shropshire, a guy who coming into this game only had, memory serves me correct, nine catches for you know something like 120, 130 yards. He comes in and he's the big play guy, right? So that's just a staple of UAB's offense and credit Bill Clark. They get the job done for the second time uh, in four years. They win Conference USA. And I'll toss it back to you on this. And I am not out here to be the guy who's going to critique Doc Holliday. But I did see some frustration amongst the Marshall fan base and some just a broader Conference USA spectators as a whole saying that, this is just another year that Marshall, it looks like it's full steam ahead or full speed ahead. The train is, you know, got full steam and they're heading in the right direction and they kind of, you know, can't put it all together at the end of the year. And I don't know if you're a Marshall fan, do you view this year as a disappointment given the way you started? Uh, me personally, I look at the schedule that Marshall played and I say, I'm not saying it was all smoke and mirrors. There were a lot of good things that happened in the first seven games of the year. You know, you beat an App State team and and that's obviously a good win. You beat FAU, even though FAU was depleted. But you can't help but feel like this year is a little bit empty. It reminds me of, you know, covering FIU the 2018 year when going down to the stretch, the last three, four ball games of the year, they had a chance to clinch Conference USA at home in the Shula Bowl against FAU. Things fall apart. Have a chance to clinch it at home, season finale against Marshall. Things fall apart. And just felt like while the team set a program record for wins, it felt like you look at that year more through the prism, more through the prism, excuse me, of what could have been. And I think this is the way, if you're a Marshall fan, I, I can't blame them for feeling that way if that's the way they do. Yeah. I mean, I look at it like this. I, I think they're definitely headed in the right direction as far as like you look at how they were able to develop Brendan Knox and uh, the fact that they were able to get a guy like Grant Wells and I'll, I'll get to his kind of, you know, his last couple of weeks in a second. But I mean, I I can understand the disappointment, but I wouldn't get too, you know, down on, on doc holiday. If, if I'm a Marshall fan, just because I think he definitely has the, I think he has what you're looking for in a college coach in terms of taking, taking in a player. And then by the end of their career, making them much, much better. Um, but obviously, given how good Marshall looked at the beginning of this year, and then you look at these last two games, it's hard not to be frustrated. I mean, Grant Wells is a young guy, and we saw him, like you said, play a really bad eight quarters of football the last two weeks. So I'll just say this. This is a, you know, a definitive moment for him in his playing career. You, know, you, you no longer have that, like, oh, he's just a freshman. He'll pick it up moment. You have to go into this offseason and realize you're the guy. 
you have to, you know, defend your, your spot and um, just make sure that you do everything in your power to be what people expected of a QB one at the D one level, because the last two games he hasn't performed as such. Um, but no, I, I can definitely understand where people are coming from as far as the disappointment, but in terms of, Doc Holliday and the coaching staff, I don't think this is the time to overreact personally. Yeah, yeah. And you, you know from you know, co-hosting this podcast with me for the past three years now, three seasons, I'm never going to be the one who's going to call for a coach's head. That's just not really my style. I, I think this is definitely overreaction season, right? You know, you can look at a, a certain fan base up the road in Orlando and say that they're ready to, you know, bring pitchforks to uh, the, the stadium over there. But this is the thing, right? So you look at Marshall from 2013 to 2015. 10 and 4, 13 and 1, 10 and 3. I think that I hate to call a fan base spoiled because I do think it's fair to expect the best, right? To expect the most out of your team. And once you've seen those heights, I think it's fair to expect that those things can come back around, especially if you feel the team is talented enough to do so. But in my in my mind, in my mind personally, I hope this isn't an insult. I look at Marshall 8 and 5, 9 and 4, 8 and 5 as being indicative of what the program is with the occasional 10, 11 win season. And I just, I don't know, you know, Joe, you let me know. And I'm going to touch on your, your Grant Wells point after this, but you let me know if that is being short-sighted as a fan, because I, I guess I look at, I hope I'm not accepting mediocrity, but I take nine wins a year and, you know, being right there in contention for the conference USA title. Um, that's again, that's not to say that, you know, that double digit win year or being 13 and one, isn't what you overall want for as, as like, you know, the broader goal, but I, I don't know. I mean, you let me know, I'm kind of rambling here, but you let me know if I'm, if I'm being short-sighted. I don't think so. I think there are G5 fan bases all over the country who would go for that kind of consistency. I mean, trophies are no, the fact that you are consistently getting into positions to win conference championships and uh, marquee bowl games is nothing to shake a stick at. Of course, they'd like to, you know, win those, those key games more often. But like you said, if you're getting to the point where we're having double digit win seasons on a fairly consistent basis at this level of football, that's pretty much the highest you can hope for. Right. Right. So, I mean, it sounds like both of you and I are kind of the same page here and quickly to touch on your Grant Wells point. I, couldn't agree with you more. I think this will be kind of that turning point situation where um, I, I hate to, you know, use a bunch of UCF analogies, but I remember Mackenzie Milton, his freshman year, the team goes six and seven. They actually play in the Cure Bowl in UCF's old home stadium of the Citrus Bowl or Camping World Stadium, I believe it's called now. And the team loses uh, against Arkansas State, right? And there were fans who booed Mackenzie Milton and uh, UCF off the field that game. And he even talked about it in his recent, you know, kind of release as he went to now transfer to Florida state. He said, Hey, I remember that. And not that he is holding it against UCF fans, but it was kind of that moment where it's like, okay, am I going to be good? Or this is going to motivate me to be great. And, and I'm not saying that Grant Wells will turn to Mackenzie Milton. I don't think very many quarterbacks can turn to the heights that he had, but this can kind of be that moment where you look back and say, Hey, my last eight quarters that uh, a football weren't great in a year that we had a chance to, con to contend for a conference championship and turn it around and be that Rakim Cato, you know, type of guy who, set all kinds of records at Marshall. So I uh, definitely think that could be a situation. And I, I look for him to, you know, this kind of be a motivating factor for him going to 2021. 
Yeah, no, that's a solid point as well. So at the end of the day, Marshall uh, left to um, fix some things before their bowl game against Buffalo, which we will get into later in the show. But once again, congrats to Bill Clark and his team on securing yet another CUSA title. Um, had one other game happen in between uh, now and our last recording, and that was the Myrtle Beach Bowl. Weird to believe that like we've already had bowl games being right, played, yeah. but I guess that's just <laughs> I guess that's just an effect of 2020 because we we would of course be seeing bowl games played at this time, but it just doesn't even feel like it, it just obviously with the end of the season being delayed, it's just it's weird that we're jumping right into it so quick. But I digress. Um in the Myrtle Beach Bowl, we had North Texas and App State uh going head to head, and App State came out victorious 56 to 28. Uh on the North Texas side, Jason Bean 21 of 36 for 251 yards and two touchdowns. Uh <clears throat> in that game for North Texas, they were, of course, uh without two key players in Deontay Simpson and DeAndre Torrey. Uh they skipped that one, presumably to focus on what's next for them in their football careers. But um you know, if you're North Texas, I mean, obviously, like, I think the fact that they were able to put up 28 points on a pretty good App State team is is certainly something to be happy about. But also, like, I think the fact that App State put up 56 on them is pretty indicative of what that defense has been all year. There you go. Yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head there, Joe. It's not necessarily that App State was able to put up the points, right? Uh, excuse me, not that, that North Texas was able to put up the points. It's that. The run defense for North Texas, I mean, the defense as a whole has been a work in progress, but giving up 317 rushing yards and five touchdowns to Cameron Peoples, that is a lot. And added to that was a 100-yard performance by, uh, I believe it's Marcus Williams. Yeah, Marcus Williams Jr. is the backup running back for App State. So you give up 400, 500 uh, total and 400 via the running backs, you know. That is a lot of yardage that defensive coordinator Clinton Bowen will have to try to address. I mean, there's a reason, you know, he was brought in this year to try to uh, address a situation that Troy Refrick was not able to fix for the uh, three years that he was at North Texas. I think that's a big thing. You know, no matter who was missing for the mean green, you know, Austin Ani and, and the guys you mentioned with Deontay Simpson, you know, and DeAndre Torrey, Trey Siggers filled in really nicely, Oscar Adaway as well. But it's the defense, you know, that's something that, Joe, really quick, and I'll pass it to you on this one. Mason Fine really covered up a lot of issues defensively in the sense that they were able to outscore teams, right? And I don't think this is a secret. You know, we were so in love with the uh, passing exploits that Mason Fine was able to put up in his career there that maybe the the defense kind of got overshadowed in the sense that they weren't necessarily defeating teams as much as they were outscoring teams. And that's something that will have to be addressed. Uh, And then, again, it's not to say that North Texas doesn't necessarily have the quarterback talent, whether it's Bean or Ani. They performed pretty well, but if unless you have that Mason fine guy and you can't ask every quarterback in the world to be able to play at that level, they're not going to win very many games if they're giving up that type of yardage. Yeah, no, that's a solid point. I mean, the system that North Texas has, it's set up for the offense and the quarterback in particular to be the star of the show. And if you don't have a quarterback who can, you know, live up to what that system expects of them, then that's how you end up with a record that's four and six. And then of course, like when you, when you have an offense that's as dynamic as North Texas, uh, North Texas can be when they're playing at their highest level, that demands so much time and energy. It's, it's, 
almost understandable that the defense isn't necessarily, you know, is putting in is putting up performances like what we saw against App State, where they're giving up 56 points and several similar games to that throughout the season. Um, so I guess that's kind of my my thought to that is if you're North Texas, you've you've put yourself in a position where you have to put so much time and energy into the offense for it to be, you know, basically with that system, you have to outscore opponents because if you're not coaching your defense, you know, the way that you're coaching your offense, then that's how you're going to get these kind of results. Right. Exactly. No doubt about it. So it's something that I think will be, will be interesting to kind of see how it goes. And it's not going to get any easier when you lose a guy like Dion Noville. I mean, unless he chooses to come back and we haven't seen any, any indication that he will. I mean, he's one of the top defensive tackles, top defensive linemen in conference USA, but unless he chooses to come back and, and, and even having him in tow, uh, this, the defense, especially the run defense has been uh, an issue. So uh, definitely be something to see how, you know, Seth Latrell addresses an off season and see what they do about that. Absolutely. Uh, speaking of the off season, it's going to be the off season in just a few weeks. Um, and there's already a ton of off season type news to go through. So we'll, we'll get through as much of it as we possibly can. Uh, starting with the conference USA in review awards uh, for 2020 uh, coach of the year is doc holiday of Marshall. Uh, we've, we talked in depth uh, about kind of the job that he's doing there. So we don't have to dive into him too much. Uh, but um, let's talk about some of the other awards in this class. Uh, first of all, CUSA MVP is Jalen Darden. He becomes the second wide receiver to be named CUSA MVP since 2008 when the award was uh, instituted. And uh, he led FBS in receiving touchdowns with 19 in just nine games and caught at least one touchdown in 10 consecutive games dating all the way back to the 2019 season finale. Uh, Eric, you and I have praised Darlin quite a bit or darted in quite a bit um, in that he he just looks like a man amongst boys when he plays. I think this this award in particular is well-deserved regardless of North Texas's uh, win-loss record at the end of the year. Um, also worth mentioning, he's a semifinalist for the Bletnikoff Award and uh, set new UNT records for career receptions and receiving yards and is the program's new career touchdown leader with 38. So uh, fantastic cap to an astounding career for Jalen Darden at North Texas. They are certainly going to miss him next season. No doubt about it, Joe. And I think the big thing for me, right, when I looked at Jalen Darden coming into this year, if you remember, Rico Bussey Jr. actually transferred to Hawaii. And he was kind of a guy who I thought, all right, I thought Rico Bussey was the number one receiver on that team. And I'm not, by, by any means, I'm not shorting Rico Bussey's talent, right? But it just was interesting that, you remember he got injured, he being Rico Bussey, got injured in 2019, and then you think, all right, you're going to get him back in 2020, and things will be back to normal. But no, he chose to transfer to Hawaii. Jalen Darden is the number one guy, and the offense just continues to roll. And it this was, this was not a situation, excuse me, this was not a situation where it was just a matter of plug-and-play at receiver. We've talked about the talent they have, whether it's been Bussey or Jalen Guyton, who's with the Dallas Cowboys, or the other receiver, Michael Lawrence. yes. That offensive scheme has helped receivers put up a lot of numbers. But Jalen Darden's exploits this year was not a matter of just plug and play at receiver and you're going to put up, you know, a thousand yards and 80 catches. He was a man amongst boys, as you mentioned, even at his size at five, nine, a buck 75, truly, truly a number one receiver, a go to guy will be interested to see what his NFL exploits hold. And I think the best way I can sum up his impact is what I've said on this podcast throughout the year, especially given some of the teams, you know, up and down quarterback playing conference USA. The number one quarterback throughout the year may have been Grant Wells or until the past few weeks, 
but the number two or number three quarterback was probably Jalen Darden, <laughs> you know, because yeah. having him, you know, on your team definitely makes uh, makes your quarterback that much better. Yeah, I'd say that's a fair assessment. Um, I would say yeah, bef- until a few weeks ago, I, was, I really expected Grant Wells to be amongst uh, these award winners. He was in an all-conference USA selection, um, and he did win freshman of the year, but I would have almost put him in the offensive player of the year uh, running had he not had the two weeks that he's had. Um, as a result, that award went to UTSA running back Sincere McCormick. He's the first UTSA player to be named the CUSA Offensive Player of the Year. Um, second in FBS with a school record, 1,345 rushing yards on 226 attempts this season uh, and has a league-high 11 rushing touchdowns. Um, I think this is a solid pick. I think uh, Sincere was the uh, most consistent offensive player in the league, and um, I, I'd almost argue I don't think there was really an offensive player that meant more to his team's uh, success, uh, particularly in the West this year, other than Sear McCormick. Joe, I hope I'm not speaking anything into existence, but I sincerely hope that we see Sincere McCormick next year. And for, you know, point of reference, he's a sophomore, which would mean by eligibility, he, he would be back next year. But, you know, we've seen a lot of running backs, especially those who take the amount of carries that he has, you know, choose to pursue professional exploits. Definitely hope that, you know, he's coming back and ready to finish the job and maybe have UTSA contend for a Conference USA title as a whole in 2021 given how close they were this year because he is a stud joe i tweeted this out that he was the best running back in in the nation that you may not have heard of and i mean just you know this year whether it's a buck 97 against texas state a buck 50 against a really good uab defense uh you know three touchdowns against louisiana tech 251 against north texas i mean just a stud and it's great to see a hometown guy really come there and uh and really help rescue the program so Absolutely. Which brings us to the winner of the defensive player of the year, Marshall senior linebacker Tavante Beckett averaged 9.6 tackles a game, had seven and a half tackles for loss, uh, one forced fumble, and then a nation leading four fumble recoveries and a touchdown Uh, was a two time defensive player of the week this year. Um, and, uh, also is just was a huge part of what Marshall was able to do in terms of putting them in a position to win a conference title this year. Uh, however, bad news for the program as he is going to skip the bowl game, uh, to focus on the NFL draft, which after this news, you kind of don't blame him with uh, all the good press and momentum heading his way. Oh, no, most definitely. And for, listen, I want to say this right now. Pound for pound, Devontae Beckett may be the best player in Conference USA. When you talk about a guy at his size who's about, you know, 5'10", 5'11", uh, 205, 210 pounds playing linebacker, that's that's incredible. And huge fan of, of you know, what he's been able to do throughout his entire career. I will say this, Joe. Uh, this was the one that was a little bit controversial especially amongst the fau faithful they made their voice known mm-hmm. i can't help but see their point Devonte beckett 90 tackles in nine games averaged 10 10 stops per game and as you mentioned he had the um the fumbles recovery the fumbles recovered and the for, the fumbles force excuse me but i gotta give a shout to leighton mccarthy who led the league in sacks with 12 and a half in just eight games and also led the, excuse me, he had nine sacks in, in uh, eight games, had 12 and a half tackles for loss, uh, was up there also in fumbles forced and and, uh, and fumbles recovered as well. So that one to me, I thought was a little bit controversial just in the sense that, and, and again, for those of you, uh, you know, listeners, this is selected by, these, these awards are selected by the Conference USA head coaches. So I, I think that should be, should be noted. But 
I personally wouldn't have minded seeing that award go to uh, Leighton McCarthy just based on, again, the amount of sacks and tackles for loss he was able to accumulate in a game fewer, uh, one game fewer than Devontae Beckett. That's something that I thought could have gone up, up in the air, but, you know, not an egregious pick with Beckett, but I can definitely see those making the case for Leighton McCarthy, who also, you know, can maybe save us a little bit of time as we go over the first and second team awards, was named to the second team in Conference USA, and I thought that was, was surprising as well, given some of the defensive ends were selected ahead of him who didn't have nearly as many sacks. But that's just kind of my thoughts on the Defensive Player of the Year award. I think that all makes sense, and I think FAU uh, fans definitely have a, uh, a solid point there. Um, and it's already kind of – it's been a weird few weeks for, for FAU with – everything uh, Corona related and them really not getting the amount of games that I think everybody would have liked to see. And then of course the Chris Robinson departure. Um, but as we'll get into later in the show, they definitely have something to be excited about. Um, but first let's, let's wrap up these awards. Um, we talked about uh, Marshall quarterback, Grant Wells winning a freshman of the year for him uh, fourth time in nine years that a Marshall player has won that award. So congrats to him. Um, but we've, we've talked about him quite, uh, ad nauseum on just on this episode of the show. So we'll, we'll jump into, uh, UTSA sophomore punter, Lucas Dean winning special teams player of the year. Uh, just the second time a punter has won the award in league history. Uh, Dean led CUSA and ranked fourth nationally in punting with a program record 46.3 yard average. Uh, you know, I'll tell you at times this, this year, this guy was, uh, showing shades of Jack Fox at punter there. Oh, no doubt about it. I mean, listen, Lucas Dean had a tremendous year and this year had quite a few, you know, really good punters, whether it was Lucas Dean or Tommy Heatherly. I mean, uh, you had John, uh, John Haggerty over there at Western Kentucky, Matt Hayball. Uh, I mean, Conference USA, whether, like you said, Jack Fox or just some of the other guys who punted throughout the league, uh, always had really su- good success in terms of the punter. So uh, shout out to Lucas Dean, his 46.3 yard per average was great. And I mean, again, I'll just run down the list. John Haggerty averaged 46 yards per kick, Matt Hayball, Connor Bowler, and Tommy Heatherly at 44 and 45. So uh, solid year. I mean, of course, you don't want to be punting the ball too much, but when, uh, when the punters were called on, they certainly booted it a long way. Absolutely. And uh, for Dean, anyway, it, it's something about these Aussie punters, man. They, they know how to develop that position down there. Um, so with that, let's talk about the newcomer of the year award that goes to Louisiana tech quarterback, Luke Anthony, uh, Anthony, of course, was the grad transfer from Abilene Christian this year, uh, seventh quarterback to win that award in the last eight years. Um, you know, I think overall kind of a disappointing year for Louisiana tech as a whole, but I think you got to give it to him for how he was able to, uh, come into uh, you know a team that certainly has high expectations for itself and certainly high expectations for that uh, position following you know what Jamar Smith was able to do over the course of his career with the Bulldogs um but you know in just the one year that uh, that Luke Anthony was there he certainly made his impact on the program yeah i'd love to see if he's able to return as we mentioned last episode he really suffered a really gruesome ankle injury so his status for next year probably going to be in in question just to see how he recovers from that but this award really is a it's a quarterback award you know i mean most times you're gonna have quarterbacks who transfer in and get a chance to compete for the job immediately so you know great job by him especially coming from an fcs program there in abilene christian only other guys i thought really had a, a decent case was you know guys like tyrell pigram if mike collins at rice you know 10 touchdowns and i believe the four games they played if he had a, he had a few more games maybe he 
he's in there. And then, you know, a guy like, um, oh, come on, it's escaping me right now. The running back from Charlotte who transferred Trey Harbison from Northern Illinois. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe if they play a few more games, he might've put up some more numbers, but outside of that, it's definitely a quarterback award and, and well-deserved by Luke Anthony. Absolutely. Uh, speaking of quarterbacks, let's dive into some transfer news from uh, the past couple of weeks here. Obviously, the big one that uh, we need to talk about and didn't get in on the last episode of the show, uh, MTSU quarterback Asher O'Hara entering the transfer portal. He still has two seasons left, but I don't think we need to really go into <laughs> a ton of depth about what a huge loss that is for the Blue Raiders as he was arguably their best player over the last four years. A few uh, years, I should say. Yeah, yeah. I mean, arguably, uh, I, I think you're you're being, you know, being the the gentleman you are. You're being kind. It's not to say that guys like Reed Blankenship and, and and others, Greg Great, aren't phenomenal players. You know, Robert Jones as well. But Asher O'Hara was the best player on that team over the past two years. It, it's a loss for Conference USA. But you know, he we've had him on the podcast, friend of the podcast, uh, his his father. Uh, Les has also listened to the podcast, so you know, shout out to them. But. It's interesting, I think, for Middle Tennessee. I'll keep it with the conference with a realm first. We're going to have to see what happens, whether it's Chase Cunningham. I believe Mike DeLeo, De my memory serves me correct, is the other quarterback on that roster who saw some time this year. Uh, we'll have to see what happens there. I, I'm hearing some rumblings that they may bring in a transfer as well. It's just it's interesting. You know, Joe, Middle Tennessee as a whole hasn't been the best over the past two years. Uh, four and eight record last year. And then this record, I don't have their record off the top of my head, but it, it seemed as if, I don't want to say Asher was kind of holding everything together, but it definitely may be a, a situation where, you know, if it's, if you're Rick Stock still, maybe you can start fresh and, you know, kind of build the program in, in a different direction. And for Asher O'Hara, I, I've seen some people on Twitter say that they don't see why he's, he's leaving. Maybe I'm biased because of you know having a chance to see him play a couple times in person. I think he's going to he's going to find a power 5 program that's going to be the right fit that runs the offense through him and he'll excel, you know. So, uh no one's confusing him for Dan Marino or Peyton Manning or Aaron Rodgers by any stretch of the imagination, but he certainly has a phenomenal skill set as a quarterback and I think he'll flourish in the right system. I think that's definitely fair and as we've uh, discussed a lot, uh, he's his skill set is not the easiest to come by in college football in terms of being uh, as competent a dual threat as he is, uh, but certainly wish him all the best and will be fascinating to see where he ends up landing. Um, heading to the other side of the hundred miles of hate, Western Kentucky gets some uh, important transfers added to the program. Uh, Houston Baptist wide receiver, Jareth Stearns and UNC linebacker, Matthew Flint. Uh, will join the program as uh, as grad students coming up here. Um, I'm really, in particular, excited about uh, Flint. Obviously, we saw some really good things out of North Carolina and that defense in particular this year. Um, and, you know, I think with just people kind of moving on from the program over the last year and a half or so, Western definitely needs depth at the linebacker position just in general. So I think this is going to end up working out pretty well for them. Yeah, Joe, I'm with you. We'll have to see what happens as far as Kyle Bailey, you know, whether he'll return and, and they have had some losses at linebacker over the last few years. I think if you put he and if you're able to get Jaden Hunter, uh, the, the transfer from, uh, come on, Georgia, he transferred from Georgia and is still there on that roster outside linebacker. 
that could be interesting. I believe Roger Cray, if memory serves me correct, uh, was doing a little bit of linebacker work. He transferred out. Someone to to, to watch is Jarrah Stearns. Uh, he's a running, not a running back, a receiver from Houston Baptist. And for those who may be, you know, the uninitiated, Houston Baptist had a quarterback by the name of Bailey Zappi who entered the transfer portal. Maybe the best quarterback as far as a non-FBS that you haven't heard of. And they put up a ton of passing yards. And Jarrah Stearns, excuse me, He's someone who I think is going to be kind of fit that role in Houston Baptist as a slot receiver. His numbers last year were something like 43 catches for 400 and something yards and a couple touchdowns. And of course, this is in a abbreviated season. But I really think if he is going to be that guy for, or if he can be that guy for Western Kentucky, who can be a slot receiver with someone can kind of give Tyrell Pigram or whoever is that quarterback a safety blanket, keep an eye on him as well. Absolutely. Uh, it's going to be an interesting offseason for the tops. That's for sure. Um, this next one, I think, is could potentially be the most immediate impact of transfers. Uh, former four star quarterback Michael Johnson Jr. will transfer from Penn State to FAU. So that definitely adds some intrigue to the offseason for the Owls QB situation. Um, Eric, I got to tell you, this kid was the talk of Oregon high school football a couple of years ago. His dad is an assistant coach for the Ducks. A lot of programs on the West Coast were really hoping to sign him. We're disappointed when he signed with Penn State. Uh, staying on the East Coast, obviously, and and add some, uh, some much needed depth to what Willie Taggart is trying to build with the Owls. I do not think that this will be the last quarterback addition for Willie Taggart and the Owls. As you mentioned, he was certainly highly regarded coming from the state of Oregon. And my apologies for anyone who listened to the last podcast and heard me say that the only thing that FAU didn't address was a quarterback. They addressed that about 15 minutes right after we finished taping that podcast as far as their recruiting class. So it will be interesting to see. We know the, the, the guys who are on the roster in terms of Nick Tronti, will or won't he be back next year? Willie Taggart Jr., Javion Posey there at quarterback, two guys. Obviously, Willie Taggart knows uh, Willie Taggart Jr. pretty well, right? But Javion Posey as well. It'd be interesting to see what direction that offense goes in in terms of are they going to run what Willie Taggart ran at USF as far as the Gulf Coast offense, which is his version of the West Coast offense. It should be interesting, but definitely a, a much-needed pickup for FAU and do not expect that to be the final quarterback added on the roster. Solid point. Speaking of quarterbacks, uh, one COSA quarterback that uh, you and I have certainly spent our, our fair share of time talking about, Jack Abraham. Uh, we talked about how he was leaving Southern Miss a few weeks ago. He has found a destination, and that is Michael Leach's team at Mississippi State. Um, I think that should be an interesting situation to watch. I mean, Jack Abraham certainly has the talent, I think, to uh, eventually win that QB one spot at Southern Miss kind of depending on what happens there. But, um, you know, I, I, if you had told me like one of a, a quarterback from CUSA was going to transfer into a P five team, um, for some reason, I just, I just didn't see it being Jack Abraham, but I certainly didn't see everything that happened to Southern Miss this year coming six months ago. Yeah. I mean, the situation with Southern Miss that you couldn't have foreseen. Right. But Anyone who's listened to this podcast knows that both of us are very big fans of Jack Abraham, and I am interested to see. The one thing I'm I'm paying attention to is Jack Abraham has had multiple coordinators in his time in college, whether it was starting out at Louisiana Tech, then the two coordinators at Southern Miss, and now he'll have to learn a new system. But, 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 Joe, 
if there's one place that you wouldn't, that you would absolutely, I hope that didn't sound as wouldn't, that you would absolutely want to go to if you are a young co- uh, college quarterback, it's Mississippi State, right? With Mike Leach, the Mad Bomber, someone who has a great reputation for developing quarterbacks. And I think this has the potential to kind of be a situation like Gardner Minshew, the Jacksonville Jaguars quarterback who spent time at East Carolina before linking up with Mike Leach uh, at uh, Washington State. And we saw what came of his career becoming an NFL draft pick. I, <laughs> this may be my own bias here. I, I think Jack Abraham is every bit as good as Gardner Minshew, if not better, as is already. Uh, at, the, at, at the similar point in time in each of their careers, excuse me. And I don't see any reason why Jack Abraham can't go in there and win the job and flourish uh, at the quarterback position. Bold statement on Jack Abraham becoming the next Gardner Minshew. But uh, as long as he's not working out in a jock strap, I'm fine with it. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> but we'll see what happens. Uh Good addition for Rice coming in over the last week or so with uh, New Mexico wide receiver Trey Patterson uh, heading into that program. Uh, we, you know, we've talked about the Rice offense quite a bit and what Mike Bloomgren's been able to build there, uh, even despite having a really shortened season, even comparatively to uh, a lot of the other teams in FBS this year. Uh, but that could potentially be a decent replacement for uh, Austin Trammell when he eventually leaves the program there. Yeah, whether it's Austin Trammell or, you know, Brad Rosner, whenever he leaves the program, I, I think it'll be interesting. I, I definitely think for, for Rice, they if they can get accumulate as much of that talent there at the receiver position, it'll help things out. Because the big thing for Rice, as we've known, is really the, the um, excuse me, the quarterback position, right? Getting that squared away. And they appear to have that done now with Mike Collins. So, I think that's a big thing that if if Trey Patterson could come in there and bring him a guy who, quite frankly, you know, a, a speedster, I think that's going to be the big thing, right? They can get a guy like that who can stretch the field, similar to how Rosner can, as, as being a sizable receiver, Brad Rosner can stretch the field, and a guy like Austin Trammell, who has been able to stretch the field, uh, I think it'll be something that can help Rice out. So, you know, Patterson's a guy who, and, and has played some football. He's appeared in something like 22 or 24 games and, and has caught some passes in his career. So if he can go out there and stretch the field, I think that'll be a huge addition for Rice. Absolutely. A couple of important notes out of the Charlotte camp this week. Uh, first of all, Charlotte defensive tackle Timmy Horn has entered the transfer portal. Uh, huge loss for the 49ers, not just in terms of size, because Timmy Horn's a big man, but uh, in terms of impact on that defense, as our guy Hunter Bailey pointed out on Twitter, uh, that defensive line unit is going to be really, really young heading into 2021. One of the most underrated defensive linemen in Conference USA over the past really three seasons has been Timmy Horn. He was a guy, Joel, I looked at coming off his 2019, 41 tackles, six and a half tackles for loss, five and a half a sack, especially from that position, which was kind of being that like nose tackle there, you know, in the three, four scheme and kind of that multiple scheme that Charlotte would run defensively, uh, whether, you know, whether it was Glenn Spencer or, or you know, wherever, because um, he, he dates back there. Even if you look at his time there in the 2018 uh, with uh, 28 tackles, a sack, and a, a, a sack and a half, and a tackle for loss. He's played in multiple different systems there. Um, and I, I just, he's a guy who I, I thought coming to this year would be one of the top defensive linemen in Conference USA. What really hurt them was the number of games played. Charlotte just didn't play uh, enough games this year. And that probably hurt, or not probably did hurt his numbers and, you know, may contribute to, to the transfer. But I absolutely think overall, you know, really, really good 
football player and he won't have any issues. Uh, the, the name that was escaping was Marcus West. Uh, Marcus West and Brandon Cooper have been the defensive coordinators under Will Healy. And of course, I was thinking back of Glenn Spencer the year prior to that. But whichever P5 program picks him up, and I think he absolutely will be a P5 player getting a really solid pick up there. Speaking of uh, Charlotte player, Charlotte, members of the Charlotte football program, <laughs> moving on to P5 opportunities. Uh, Charlotte offensive line coach Lee Grimes is expected to take the same job at Kansas, who I guess is a power five team technically. <laughs> but uh, that's uh, that's obviously a frustrating loss if you're Will Healy um, to, to lose a guy who, uh, you know, I think really did a, a really solid job for uh, building a unit that was protecting Chris Reynolds the past couple of years. Yeah, no doubt about it. And to any Kansas fans who happen to have stumbled upon upon this podcast, A, we thank you for listening, but B, hey, you guys know what it is. So don't uh, don't throw your hate mail at us. <laughs> um, no, all jokes aside, you know, Lee Grimes is someone who a lot of experience. I know he briefly played with the Bucks and the Chargers for a little bit, but you know, someone who was really well regarded at, at Texas AM, spent some time at Minnesota. You know, he he's someone who really kind of a uh, you want to give them the the cliche label of rising star in the coaching profession, but it's someone who definitely will be onto bigger and better things, quote unquote, bigger at, at Kansas, because I mean, you know, Hey, eh, Kansas, Charlotte, <laughs> what can you say there? Um, but no, it, it, it'll be a, it'll be a decent loss for the, for the Niners when we have to pay attention to see who they get to fill that role. For sure. Uh, moving on to some news out of Marshall, um logan clark entering the transfer portal there so that's a that's a tough loss for them uh but some more immediate losses for the upcoming bowl game against buffalo uh brendan and knox Devonte beckett and josh bell have opted out of that game uh, to focus on the nfl draft yeah so I, I think you know no surprises as far as really the guys who chose to opt out especially given you know this year in 2020 and some of the circumstances behind it that one doesn't really surprise me, but the big tight end choosing to transfer out, you know, he was someone who was a, a three-star Juco guy. And it's kind of weird to see some of these Juco guys not work out in the sense that I, I, I don't know. I mean, I think after one year in Logan Clark, again, a three-star prospect, he's there behind Xavier Gaines. Xavier Gaines is going to be heading to the NFL draft. I mean, I don't think there's any doubt about that. So that one was kind of curious, but as far as the guys who opted out, no real surprises there because especially given all the things surrounding COVID-19 and just there at this point in time, there probably is no real benefit to them playing the bowl game outside of, you know, getting one more run in with their teammates, but not going to begrudge those guys for choosing to pursue their NFL career. So I would say the biggest thing that surprised me there was Logan Clark choosing to transfer because he was a solid prospect coming out of Juco. Yeah, for sure. That that one's a little weird, but I guess that's the way the cookie crumbles sometimes in CUSA. Uh, speaking of tough losses, UAB is going to lose another wide receiver in Myron Mitchell as he enters the transfer portal. Of course, Austin Watkins opted out of the uh, remainder of the season a couple weeks back. Um, uh, didn't impact their uh, mission to win a CUSA title, but uh, they're going to have some uh, rebuilding to do in that uh, receiver unit next year. Yeah, that one definitely is, is a tough loss. And as we've mentioned earlier in this podcast about UAB's offense and really kind of the the quarterback situation and consistency, and I talked about in the last podcast as far as completion percentage, that offense in terms of the passing game is really boom or bust, right? And for Myron Mitchell, he's kind of a boom guy. You know, someone could stretch the field, had 63 grabs for 990 yards and seven touchdowns at UAB. Definitely a, a big-time playmaker, about 6'2", 180. So, 
been intrigued to see where he lands, but he definitely is someone who, you know, whether it's at another FBS program or in terms of the uh, the group of five level, has the talent to be a number one guy, or if it's at the, you know, power five level, can fit can fill a role, excuse me, in an offense and be someone who can, you know, definitely secure some catches and stretch the field as well. Absolutely. And uh, last bit of transfer news uh, for this episode, another wide receiver that uh, could make a significant impact right away. Georgia wide receiver Trey Blount will transfer to Old Dominion. So we haven't uh, done a lot of talking about Old Dominion this year because uh, obviously they didn't play football this fall. But um, if we're looking at ahead to the Monarchs 2021 season, this could be a very big uh, addition for them and, and what they're trying to do. This one was much needed for Ricky Ronnie. When you look at Eric Kuma, the Virginia Tech receiver who transferred in in 2019, played the 2019 season, ended up suffering a season ending injury. I, I want to see was something like a broken hand or some of that effect. My memory could be off there, but he missed most of his first year with Old Dominion and he chose to pursue an NFL career after this year with ODU choosing to set out football. So they definitely needed someone at the receiver position for whether it's Hayden Wolf or whoever wins that quarterback job. And, you know, Trey Blunt was a big time four-star prospect at the university of Georgia was recruited by Alabama and other sec schools. So be definitely be intriguing to see where he lands. Absolutely. And uh, to wrap up this section of the show, uh, FIU making the decision to part ways with offensive coordinator Rich Skrosky. Uh Eric, a resident FIU expert, what can you tell us about that move? Yeah, this is a tough one, Joe. I mean, I will go ahead and just confess my, you know, quote unquote bias uh, up front, right? Coach Skrosky is someone I've gotten to know really well over the you know three seasons I've been covering FIU. Really a bluntly honest coach, Joe, in the sense that he was always willing to talk, uh, you know, very candidly about his offense. And, and I'm not saying he was giving away state secrets or anything like that. I, I don't want to you know, imply that he was talking about things that shouldn't have been talking about, you know, to someone who works in the media. Right. But was absolutely someone who would sit down and have a genuine, honest conversation about his offense and philosophies and, and you know, the, what he's in for of his quarterback. And it never felt when you were talking to Coach Skrosky as if you were getting spent, right? You know, you always felt as if you were getting a genuine conversation. And most of all, you were learning something that you didn't know prior. So as I tweeted out, he's really one of the good guys in the coaching profession. Uh, you know, he'll land on his feet. He's had head coaching stops at Elon and other schools and, and is really a, a vet. So, you know, it sucks to, to lose your job, especially around the holidays this time of year. But Coach Skrosky is a good guy and he'll land on his feet. And, um, you know, really, really a, a really great guy and a really good coach. Absolutely. Hopefully he finds something uh, sooner rather than later. Um, with that, let's talk about some upcoming bowl games within CUSA. Eric, as we're recording this, we have one going on right now, but uh, I was going on the, I was on the fence of whether or not we were even going to talk about it because right now Georgia Southern is uh, just putting it to Louisiana tech 21 to nothing in the RNL carriers, new Orleans bowl. Uh, it's still the second quarter. So definitely time for the Bulldogs to turn it around, but as of now, looking like they're having some trouble defending that triple option. <laughs> you and I talked about it when FAU played Georgia Southern. It is a matter of, man, it's so hard to prepare for an offense that you're only going to see, Joe, maybe once a year, depending on who you play. You know, mm -hmm. if you schedule a triple option team, maybe once every two or three years. And it, it, whether it is, it comes down to, you have to tackle them at the line of scrimmage. You got to have perfect fundamentals. You got to be in there, fill your gaps in the right spots, because if you don't play everything consistently, you're going to give up a hundred yards easily 
to maybe multiple running backs and especially them getting shy words back who feels like he's been at Georgia Southern for like 10 years, you know, getting really the head man who can run that system uh, just to its peak performance. Yeah. You know, it's a tough sledding for, for Louisiana tech. And also the other thing, if you get down 21, nothing, Joe, you're not going to have many, you know, enough possessions to come back because each Georgia Southern drive is going to be 10, 12 minutes. So yeah. Uh, I, by the time we finish recording this one or, or you know, I, I definitely think that, Sorry, Tech fans. Uh, I think this one will be in the books. Uh, Georgia Southern, kind of really, really hard to come back from a, a 21-0 deficit against that type of offense. Margin for error is so slim against teams that run the triple option well, and we're kind of seeing evidence of that uh, right now. So we'll uh, we'll see how that one turns out in terms of a final score. Uh, also, later tonight, uh, Wednesday, December 23rd at 7 Eastern on ESPN, we have FAU playing Memphis in the Montgomery Bowl. Tigers favored by eight and a half heading into that one. Uh, if you haven't watched Memphis play this year, uh, Brady White more or less up to, uh, you know, the kind of some of the stuff that we saw him do last year, 26 touchdowns, well over 3000 yards so far. Um, so this offense, as uh, our guy Joe Broback can tell you, is uh, nothing to take lightly for sure. So FAU has their work cut out for him. I'm going to pick Memphis, but uh, I'm curious to see what FAU does under the uh, bright lights here. This is a game I'm really interested to see because, as I've mentioned, you know, whether it's been this podcast or other places, when you talk about Memphis football, you're talking about, quote unquote, the cream of the crop as far as group of five teams and a program that, quite frankly, you wouldn't have many CUSA teams wouldn't have the opportunity to face. Right. You know, whether it's been them or UCF or Cincinnati they've been in the conversation for the new year six bowl bid as far as the group of five teams. So definitely intrigued to see how FAU stacks up. And I think if you're an FAU fan, this will be a nice, if you're able to get the win, could be a nice little feather in your cap heading into 2021. Seems how like you weren't able to win conference USA or even contend for the, the title game, but are playing the title of the game, excuse me. So definitely want to see what happens there. Brady white, as you mentioned, he's been playing college ball since I think you and I both were in college is uh, now completing his doctorate at Memphis. So be interested to see also have to see, you know, how they're going to compete against guys like Calvin Austin, because he really is a, a game breaking receiver at 60 grabs for a thousand yards and 10 touchdowns. They don't have DeMonte Coxie who chose to opt out. They don't have Kenny Gainwell chose to opt out and that kind of levels the playing field for FAU, but definitely want to see you again. This is a matchup that I think you have to be salivating if you're an FAU fan and, and, and an owl on that team, because you wouldn't have a chance to play Memphis otherwise, you know, or at least a, a team, the caliber of Memphis otherwise. So definitely intrigued to see how this matchup plays out tonight. For sure. And then on Friday, we've talked about it a little bit, but uh, Buffalo playing Marshall in the Camellia Bowl. Uh, Buffalo favored by four and a half heading into that one. Um, look, if you haven't watched Jarrett Patterson play yet, the running back for Buffalo, he is really something. 141 carries this season with 172 yards, or rather 1,072 yards and uh, 19 touchdowns. So uh, recommend tuning into this one. Um, I do think if Grant Wells can kind of turn around what he's been able to do, they're going to keep this one close, just like they did in the CUSA title game. But, you know, ultimately, I think Buffalo is a little bit more of a, a consistent team. But uh, on, it wouldn't surprise me if Marshall won this game, but I'm still going to pick Buffalo. Joe, the big thing that you undersold about Jarrett Patterson's numbers, 
those came in six games. <laughs> Let's make sure that's clear. That was not in, you know, a 10, 11, 12 game year as the Mac did play an abbreviated season. That's the big thing. And if you haven't seen Jared Patterson play, I don't know how you haven't after his eight touchdown performance the other, the other week or whichever, I think it was about two weeks ago. That is what I'm interested to see. And hopefully we don't jinx it by talking about it now that he does play because there was some speculation as far as him dealing with a knee injury. And of course, he'll be pursuing his pro career, you would think, after this year that he may choose to opt out of this game. So hopefully you do see him. But for Marshall, yeah, this is one would be, uh, again, I, I don't want to say it's it'll shake off the final two losses of the year, but I think if you can come back and beat a really, really solid Buffalo team, that will help things go into the offseason. Now, if you lose, then, you know, you're probably those Marshall fans who feel the way that I you know mentioned earlier in the podcast about this year being really unsatisfying – they're going to have more gas to, you know, to, to add to the flames as far as that feeling. But I think for Grant Wells and, 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 you know, the rest of the Marshall team that is there, it's going to be tough, especially them not having Beckett and Knox, but it gives them something to play for wanting to a avenge the two losses and B show that they can be a solid team without Beckett and Knox. I'm going to go with Buffalo, but I'm intrigued to see what Marshall will do. For sure. If I didn't say so already, you can catch the one at ESPN on at 2.30 on Christmas Day. Um, and then Georgia State hosting Western Kentucky on Saturday. Uh, well, hosting, quote-unquote, in the uh, Lending Tree Bowl in Mobile, uh, 3.30 Eastern on ESPN. Um, Georgia State favored by 3.5. Here's the thing. I am going to pick the tops. I like the momentum that they've been able to build so far this season. Um, I, I just – I haven't really seen anything from Georgia state in the nine games that they played that make me think that uh, they are, you know, deserving of being favored in this game, if I'm being honest. But um, I do think Western now that they've actually had some time uh, to heal and hopefully figure some things out on the uh, defensive side of the ball that they can win this game. I'm with you. And this isn't shorting Western Kentucky by a stretch of imagination, although they've played really good football over the past couple of weeks. I was surprised that they were just clearly favored. I would have thought maybe, you know, a one point favorite if that or, you know, maybe a being an underdog for Georgia State. They have a really good quarterback in Cornelius Brown. He's a, you know, I think the big thing with him, uh, nickname is quad because he's Cornelius Brown, the fourth. But Joe, when you watch this game, and I know you will being a resident Western Kentucky guy. You're going to look at Cornelius Brown, and the first name that's going to come to mind is Vince Young. Not, I don't want to say that he is the next Vince Young because he's a redshirt freshman. Don't want to put that level of you know um, uh, pressure on him. But he's 6'6", 205 pounds, tall, lanky, looks, runs, throws just like Vince Young. Uh, can definitely an athletic guy. You know, a, a guy who's from uh, Birmingham, Alabama, so uh, a southerner down there is choosing to you know kind of get things started at Georgia State. So that'll be the player to keep an eye on. All in all, I am a little little bit leaning towards Georgia State, but it wouldn't shock me if West Kentucky can keep it close. I just think that, you know, Georgia State, for me personally, I think they're coming to this one playing just a little bit better football and a little bit better team, quite frankly. Yeah, I think that makes sense. Uh, rounding out the bowl schedule as of now, uh, unlikely that we'll get any more CUSA bowl games added, but you never know. Uh, UTSA and number 19, Louisiana, in the Surf Pro First Responder Bowl. Uh, Raging Cajuns favored by 13 and a half headed into this one. Uh, look, I mean, I think this is going to be one more stage for Sincere McCormick this year to kind of build his resume as well as, you know, Jeff Trailer to show how far he's taken this program. Uh, <laughs> here's the problem. Um, 
the Raging Cajuns are really, really good. They were very close to uh, sneaking into the New Year's Six uh, conversation, um, which is, you know, a topic that uh, you should go listen to the Sunbelt podcast to hear more about. But um, this is a really good team. So I think they're going to win this game against UTSA. Man, this is one that's going to be tough. They have, they being Louisiana, uh, the Raging Cajuns, uh, don't want any more, you know, issues with uh, with naming as far as teams are concerned. Um, <laughs> they have a really good quarterback in Levi Lewis, right? And that is, uh, he's one of the top playmakers in the entire nation. As you mentioned, they are number 16 in the AP poll for a reason. Definitely intrigued to see how sincere McCormick and especially that UTSA defense, guys like Trevor Harmonson and Rashad Wisdom can stack up, but they have playmakers all across the field. Elijah Mitchell, Trey Raggis, you know, Levi Lewis, again, as I mentioned. So definitely intrigued to see what is going to happen there. And their head coach, Billy Napier, it appears that he's committed to staying at Louisiana. So that's going to give them a nice boost heading into the first responder bowl. So provided that game, you know, fingers crossed, knock on wood, we don't have any issues there like we did, unfortunately, with UAB's bowl game that uh, won't be played in South Carolina due to South Carolina's COVID issues. Hopefully we get this one in. And I think it'd be a competitive game, but give me Louisiana as well. With that, let's uh, start wrapping up this episode of the show. Uh, once again, thank you all so much for listening this year and, and bearing with us in what has been the strangest college football season, hopefully, of our lifetime. I really don't want to deal with this again in 2020-21, but uh, <laughs> we'll see. Um, and, uh, of course, if you want to check out more G5 football content, underdogdynasty.com is the site. If you want to follow Eric and myself on Twitter, I'm at J-O-E-H-I-O underscore. Eric is at Eric C. Henry underscore. And then, of course, at Underdog Dynasty on Twitter to follow the site's uh, main account. And maybe even hear some commentary on the bowl games from us or uh, some of our other counterparts on the site there. Uh, but until we meet again, uh, have a very Merry Christmas. Uh, happy holidays all around. And we will talk to you very, very soon. Happy holidays, everybody. Happy football watching. 